Hey, this is Dave Ryder from Cullamunda Church of Christ. Really praying this podcast blesses you. If you'd like to hear more of our story, how about you go to our webpage, cullamunda.church. Uh, my name's Douglas. I have the privilege of serving on the teaching team at New Spring Church, and it's been a joy to do that. Um, you know, I stand amongst some really great people down there, and uh, one of the things I love about it is seeing the way the different gifts manifest their modes of teaching. Um, you had Dave last week, and I kind of laughed when I listened to the message, because in typical fashion, he just goes for, like, just what's the big thing? What's, the, what's this all about? Who are we to be the church, and what does it mean about the kingdom? He's all about that vision, that grand vision, the, the meta-narrative of God's story. And it's great, and you get a perspective from that angle. And then um, Matt Fricker, what a, a pastor teacher. He's incredible. And uh, so I listened to that one. And Matt's the kind of person that when he speaks, he comes up and it's like he puts his arm around you and he says, we're in this together and let me just walk you through and, and let me show you what I'm learning and seeing and what the Lord is doing. Um, I don't know if Brett Keogh has been here. Have you, any of you heard Brett? Yeah? Okay, yeah. Uh, he's really getting into that kind of teacher's own, someone who just loves breaking down scripture line on line. So you, you get all these different angles and aspects, and it made me think, I wonder what I do. And, and the reality is I like to go after people's hearts. <laughs> and I hope that's uh, part of the challenge for me is that in order to do that, God always goes after mine first, <laughs> which is why I think I leak so much, because you discover all sorts of things that you don't want to see. Um, but in his grace, he continues to deliver us. And this is essentially what we're going to be looking at this morning, because we are in the second week of a series that's just starting on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, it's something that I went through to quite uh, an extensive degree back in, I think, 2005 and six, And it was a very enriching and rewarding experience then. And it's been wonderful to come back to it and uh, to revisit it. And it's, it's just amazing to me all the time how Scripture has such depth and life and dimension and potency um, and this, uh, this, this print seemingly somehow has a way of continuing to open your eyes to new things. So it's been very much a joy for me to get immersed in it. And I do love the Gospels. Uh, there's only one Gospel. You realise that, don't you? So it's not the Gospel of Matthew that we're looking at, it's the Gospel according to Matthew. It's an important point because, uh, you know, I've done theological study and I don't know whether it's frustration or amusement, it's probably a mix of both. Um, people get caught up in creating these all ideas that it's Matthew's particular, you know, theology and his particular gospel. He has a gospel of his own and Paul has a gospel of his own. And they, they may express it and uh, give you different dimensions and perspectives on it. But the reality is there is just one gospel. And so then you look at the gospels and you say, well, why do we have four? And everyone loves to ask that question. But I like to look at what is it that they bring? If you look at the, the story or the gospel as written by Matthew, one of the things that people will tell you is that it's often, it was targeted towards Jews. Um, so you, you, you probably think that, well, maybe it's more suited to a Jewish ear. But the reason I love it is because Matthew, is, as part of his unpacking uh, the gospel, is trying to help people understand the continuity of the gospel in relation to Israel's story and history. 
you look at the genealogy that he starts out with, it's the Davidic genealogy. So he's straight away pointing to the Messiah as coming right out of that line from Abraham straight down to the Messiah, coming through King David and um, various people. And you see the history of Israel in that genealogy. And then in the, first, uh, the next three chapters or thereabouts, he, he does, I think he cites no more than seven times the fact that there are scriptures that were fulfilled in the birth and the early childhood years of Jesus. So as we Gentiles, <laughs> I don't know if there are any Jewish people in here, so forgive me if <laughs> I've uh, not seen you or known you, but generally speaking, we're all Gentile in that respect in the way um, the Gospel talks about those who are not of uh, Israel tradition and uh, heritage. This is wonderful to know. Because you can land in the story of the gospel and, and have no sense of your history. But God has engrafted us into the history of Israel because his work, even though it's the work for the whole earth and all of creation, is yet done from some fascinating way through, it begins with Abraham and through Israel. Remember the blessing of Abraham? Part of it was that they would be a nation to be a blessing to the rest of the nations. And the manifestation of it came in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that opened up the way for the Gentiles. So if you're a Gentile in this day, if you're a Greek or whatever, and you're trying to figure out how on earth do we fit, well, this gospel actually probably was really quite helpful because it's telling that story. One of the other things that Matthew does is spends, uh, that helps, it's, it's one of those things, it's helped understanding the social identity of the Christian community. So we have the continuity from the past, but I guess the discontinuity, if you like, or the, the way it opens up to the future and how the Gentiles are now, and everyone and anyone who receives Christ comes into this new community in a new covenant that comes in and only through Jesus, our Lord. There's a third thing that is in the Gospel, and, and that's discipleship. And the Sermon on the Mount is... is essentially one that lines up that particular theme and focuses on it quite intently. And uh, there's a couple of themes um, in the whole Sermon on the Mount. Uh, essentially, Jesus is responding to about three different questions. The first one is, is you notice he's sitting up on the mountain, the disciples come to him, he's been, he's been preaching the kingdom of God. And I guess the first question um, that he res he's answering is, so if I'm to be a disciple, what is the formative process for a disciple? Then he talks about the mission of the disciple. And then he goes on to teach through the law the character or the way in which the disciple is to manifest this life. So you have speaking essentially about how is it that we come into maturity and that's the Beatitudes that we are beginning with. And then the salt and light is really a, a pointer or a, this is the purpose of what's going on. So when you come into the maturity of the faith, this is what you'll be like. You'll be salt in the earth and you'll be a light to the world. And then he gets to the point, so okay, so we understand the process. Well, I hope I'll open your eyes to a little bit of that this morning. <laughs> um, we know the mission, so well, what is it? You know, how are we supposed to live, and, and how does that relate to the law, and what is it um, that is supposed to guide our life? And then he goes into this teaching that is essentially like um, it's not doing away with the law. Obviously, he's fulfilling the law, but it's showing how the law applies to those who become disciples. 
And this is where he gets quite pointed and he really starts going after the heart. So you can probably understand a little bit about why I love this sermon. I'm a man after the heart. I, I don't want to just think intellectually about theology uh, and God. I don't want to live a behavioural modification program. I want to be transformed in my inner being so that I become like Jesus. And if you want to do that, you're in good company. If you don't, hopefully by the end of this, I'll get you there. <laughs> you know, if you want to try and control your behaviours and manage your sin by some kind of exercise of the will, it'll wear you out. And you know it doesn't really work. You know, you can look good for a while. You can seem like you've got it all together. But life will have a way, and I think it's actually God's way, of putting you in circumstances and places, yeah, of putting pressure on you so that your outward projections, your facades, the way in which we present, come tumbling down and all of a sudden your heart starts getting exposed. And you know what that is? It's grace. God is actually after your heart. It's the grace to actually be exposed to the things where we lack. We sing, I'm hungry and thirsty, Lord, but I don't really want you to show me where I hunger and where I thirst. Because we're fearful, because the world has taught us that when you are vulnerable, you're going to get smashed. People in our lives who have seemingly been trustworthy have opened up We've opened up to and all of a sudden they've either weaponized our vulnerabilities or they've judged us or they've rejected us. These things have taught us that to be vulnerable is not a smart thing. And yet God comes and one of the challenges that he has with us is trying to break that defense mechanism that we have because we actually don't believe that he is good. That his steadfast love endures forever. That his mercies are new every morning. But by the grace of God, you get to taste and see. And as you taste and see, he takes you into this place where you actually discover there is a goodness of God that it doesn't matter how long you walk with him. I don't think you'll ever understand it, comprehend it. It is beyond you and yet it is so compelling and it satisfies the deepest hungers of your cries of your heart. And so the process then becomes something not that you resist, but you willingly engage him because you know how good it is when he takes you through. So we're in the Beatitudes. And, you know, it's, um, it's been interesting to read some of the stuff about people that have weighed, the way people have handled it. And you would have picked up on this through, I think Dave mentioned a little, but Matt Fricker certainly um, talked about how some have proposed the Sermon on Mount like a, it's just some kind of Christian ethic as if it's, uh, it's just a, like a, a moral code that relates between um, people, right? It's just between the way in which we operate with each other. But I just think you cannot read it that way at all because this is not just how we're supposed to live with one another, but it is always our relationship with God and how that impacts how we live with one another. Remember when Dave said that after sitting with Bathsheba and getting Uriah killed, and uh, do you know the story of David when he just really just messes up terribly? He's confronted by Nathan the prophet, and he gets to a point where the word of the Lord through the prophet Nathan exposes him to the corruptness in his own heart, his deceitfulness, his lust, his idolatry, his murderous heart, and he is convicted to the core. And then he starts 
this lament of saying, Lord, against you and you only I've sinned. It's expressed in Isaiah, um, Psalm 51. Now, when you first hear that, you think, you've got to be joking. <laughs> Dave sinned about just about, he sinned against the nation because he stayed at home when he was supposed to be out at war with the rest of them, and then everything precipitated from there. But the reality is, and when we sin against someone else, it is not some private, you know, one-on-one. We're actually sinning against the Lord because we're not understanding that we are created in the image of God. We are created in the image of God, the likeness of his character. And that does two things. It puts in someone the highest of dignity and worth that is intrinsic to their being and their existence that has nothing to do with their behaviour or their lifestyle or circumstances. Nothing at all. Which is why it doesn't matter how someone else behaves, the Christian is called to continue to love and be merciful and gentle and kind in the way that way we entreat all people. Now, that's a challenge. <laughs> Who of you are going to work this week? <laughs> Who of you got people at work that uh, you're probably not necessarily looking forward to all the time to seeing? <laughs> Yet that is no reason. You know, some of the political commentary and people talk about the, the, the battles and they say... Um, there's a guy called Ben Shapiro that I've watched a little bit of and it's interesting to hear but one of the things he says about in his dialogues is if, is I will respect, you know, you show respect and I'll respect you. I'm like, hmm, no. I, I have a different world view to you. <laughs> because regardless of how people treat me, I still, grace and thanks be to God, realise that people are worthy of respect and dignity. And you know, sometimes it's in the face of someone else's behaviour, your dignity and respect and honouring of them is the only way they get to taste and see that God is good. That's the preamble to tell you how important this sermon is and the Beatitudes. The other way, so just before I get there, the other way that people have taken it is, is if this is talking about a future-only um, reality, like blessed are you are poor in spirit because don't worry, when you die, <laughs> you'll get the kingdom. Don't worry if you're mourning and grieving now, it's okay, just wait till you die and then the kingdom's coming. That's not entirely wrong in that respect because the reality is if you look at um, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth well there's a lot of meek that have lived and died and gone that haven't inherited anything so there is a dimension to this that is in the future but so much of it is talking about the reality of God's presence in our lives in the here and now you know Dave likes to describe it this way it's the kingdom of God breaking in and breaking forth we get to taste and experience the kingdom now it is not that God will manifest the fullness of his kingdom in us through us without the return of the Lord, but it is nevertheless an amazing thing that we get to taste what is coming. And I think he gives us that also because we're supposed to be witnesses of the coming Lord, that Jesus is coming back. Have you ever thought of that? It's, we, we're actually not going to create utopia as everyone continually tries to do here on earth. We are to be witnesses of the return of the coming king. So they have a very real and present application. But my argument, I'm going to assert to you that these beatitudes are all about the spiritual formation process. And so I'm going to unpack that for a little of you now. And hopefully 
you'll get to see it. So I'm just going to read a little bit from you. Chapter 5, verse 2. He says, He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Probably familiar to many of you, I presume, if you've been a Christian any time, you would have heard these Beatitudes. I, I just hopefully will shed some new light on it for you and that you might see it in a new way. But it is interesting that that begins with the fact that blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And actually it's verse 10 where he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Even though there's a blessed after that, it's like these beatitudes that we call them or these attributes or however we like to look at it are captured in this idea. This is what it's like in the kingdom of heaven. This is about the kingdom of heaven. There's a bracketing in that place and it starts with blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, if these were to be attributes or conditions that the human was, could somehow attain, let's say that you, know, you can make yourself humble and therefore um, you become a recipient of the blessing, that only exposes the fact, because this is what some people tend to, to want to suggest, that there is a tendency in the human heart to always position themselves as the one who is able to be worthy or somehow present themselves in a way that is able to receive the blessing of God. Have you ever noticed that you hear grace, but you never really fully understand it because, for example, if you do something wrong, all of a sudden you think God is somehow not going to be merciful to you. Or your relationship with God is feels intimate with him when you're doing really well and distant when you're not. Or you've got this little thing in your head that says, you know, well, some people won't come to church because they just think, oh, I can't come into church. I, I'm, too, I'm not good enough to be in a church. All of that stuff is just the way in which we try and make ourselves good enough for God. It's very hard to come to terms with a God who says, I'm going to redeem you and give you a new life and acquit you of your sin. I'm going to pay for that on the cross and then you can receive the blessing of the kingdom and I don't expect you, it's not just I don't expect you to put nothing on the table. He says, I'm telling you, you can't. You can't come to me and put something on the table and think that that's going to be worthy in my eyes, says the Lord, for you to now be worthy of receiving the blessing of my kingdom. Have you ever cried out for hunger and thirst for God to satisfy or talk to you, but you're not really sure if he's going to answer? Have you ever wondered, oh, I don't know if I've read my Bible enough or got the whip out and say, I'm just not praying enough or I've got to get back to church or I missed a, a week of church because you know, just, I just wanted some alone time but I feel guilty now? Chances are some of the stuff that's going on in you 
It's because you don't feel worthy before the Lord. And you think that your relationship is based on how you are or your performance. That's a lie. Ephesians, we went through that recently where it talks about you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Following the Prince of Power in this world, yet it was God who was rich in mercy, who through faith saved you, raised you up in Christ, seated with him in the heavenly places. And this was by grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not a work of your own, lest anyone would what? Boast. So you can actually come and recognise that on that threshold of entering into the kingdom that you cannot bring anything to receive it. You just have to learn that it's by grace that you receive. But there's this weird thing that goes on where you have to become the poor in spirit. Then you're blessed. And the challenge about that is it's not about something you do but it's a revelation of sin. In Matthew 15, Jesus talks about the problem of the human heart. He said, what defiles us is not what happens on the outside or what we put in our bodies, but what defiles us comes from here and it comes out of mouth and it demonstrates the fact that we don't just have a behavioural problem Our problems are not just our thoughts even, but it comes out of our heart, all sort of wickedness, sexual immorality, defilement, slander, gossip. These are the things that defile us. And so when we talk about the Beatitudes and his teachings, you, you can understand that actually what Jesus is really doing is he's not saying that, well, he's saying that the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes is not sufficient simply because they were only concerned with external appearances. And Jesus is saying, no, no, you've got to surpass that. You've actually got to address the sin in your heart. And one of the amazing things about the promises that were given back in Ezekiel and Jeremiah is that he had talked about a day that would come where Jesus or God would come and bring his spirit to give us a new heart. And I will put them one heart, and with a new spirit I will put it within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. The whole Israel story is just exposing the reality of the human condition that we cannot, by our own means, ever make ourselves right before God. Being poor in spirit, it's an interesting word. Matt talked about this last week. There's two Greek words for it. There's one I think is penes, and uh, I think I wrote it down. So I would remember, so I could tell you, so to help you. (laughs) Poor in spirit, penes. It's to toil for daily subsistence. This is the first one. And Matt put it really well. He said it's, it's poor, but you have means. You have means to actually survive, and yet you're poor. And there's millions of people in the world that are like that. I don't. It's Australia. I think we are. It's an incredible position where just about anyone you meet really isn't in this kind of position. That doesn't mean we don't have them, but you don't have to go to too many other countries to realise how blessed this country is. The other one is 
pochas, which means to be reduced to beggary. Absolute destitution. And as Paul said, it's poor with no means. So you have poor with means and poor without means. To be poor in spirit, as is written here, is to mean to be poor without means in spirit. Spiritually destitute, impoverished, you have nothing in your tank and there's nothing you can do to change your situation. Remember when Jesus is sitting with the Pharisees and the tax collectors? Uh, sorry, with the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees are watching on. And uh, do you remember what he says? Sorry. I'll try and say that again. Jesus is eating with Matthew, the tax collector, and they've had a big party at his house and there's all these sinners there and then the Pharisees are watching on. And do you remember what's going on in the, the hearts of the Pharisees and the scribes? They're looking at Jesus saying, what are you doing? Why are you eating with those sinners? And Jesus basically turns to them and says, I do not, you know, it's, it's not the well who need a physician, but the sick. I've come not for the righteous, but for sinners. Now you can read that and think, oh, so the tax collectors and the sinners, they're the righteous ones and the Pharisees are not? That makes no sense. What is it about those people? What was it about Matthew the tax collector that made him so... Well, endearing to Jesus? Is that a, can I put it that way? It's the fact that he was confronted with Jesus and he recognized that he was poor in spirit. And so then he gets to eat with Jesus. Jesus walks in and says, Let me sup with you. Starts talking to him about the kingdom. The Pharisees, on the other hand, can't get their head around this. And so it's not so much whether or not you, it's not, are you sick? It's, do you, do you recognize that you're sick? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the God. That has got to be something that helps us interpret the way that Matthew is writing. Right at the beginning of the gospel, he says that the only announcement that the angel makes is that you will name him Jesus because he will save his, the God's people from their sins. The salvation from sin, being poor in spirit, is the recognition, the revelation that we are essentially dead in our transgressions and sins before God in our human nature. And it is the only doorway into the kingdom. Because it's at that point where you realise that you have nothing and you need. The other way of putting poor in spirit is that I have need. I have need for God. I need God because without him, spiritually, I'm dead. Why is this condition so important? Because as you go through in life, you discover that this isn't just something that um, is a one-off it's actually something that happens cyclically. And God takes you deeper and deeper as you discover the layers that exist. He's trying to get you to remember every time you turn to rely on your own resources, every time you assert your independence, every time you take hold of that worldly mantra of being self-reliant and self-confident, you are now cutting yourself off from your dependence on God 
and thinking that you know how to live this life on your own terms. And we don't. And out of his grace, he keeps bringing us back to this place. And it's the entry point into the formative process to become like Jesus because we actually have to learn a new way of living. And so it's the entry into that place, but then you'll start to see how, why I call this as a process is because you'll see that from this point, every beatitude from there builds on the previous. I can feel, you know, you can just tell when people start talking about sin and what's in our hearts, it gets uncomfortable. When God puts his finger on it, there's nothing else to do but lament and grieve, is there? When you start seeing the perniciousness of sin, or you start seeing the sins that you've committed against someone else, or the wounds that you receive from sins of others, it grieves us because there's something about it that destroys, it kills, it tears down, it breaks down life, and it causes you to mourn. But it's about recognizing it's not just the sin out there, it's the sin in us. And when we get to that point where we are mourning, God says, don't worry, for I will comfort you. And in that place where we recognize that we're poor in spirit and where we start grieving about not just the reality out there but the reality in here, there's something that happens to us which he expresses in this way, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Meek's an unusual word. <laughs> it has synonyms like gentleness and gentleness of spirit but I found this definition of meekness and I thought it was really quite powerful. Meekness toward God is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good. And therefore, without disputing or resisting. Meekness is that disposition of spirit in which we accept his dealings with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. Some of us are probably halfway there. We accept that God, he, he's good, but we often dispute and resist his dealings with us. And in that space where you resist, you still haven't really come to terms with the, the poverty of spirit and you really haven't grieved the reality of sin before God. That all sin is, is really against God. And yet in his mercy, he, he brings us to this place and starts cultivating this heart that is yielded to his spirit. And I believe that it is to the degree that you understand the depths of sin is also, which is grievous, the, the height to which you can see the grace and the glory and the majesty of our Lord. To the degree which you've been taken into that place where you realise how much you lack is the degree to which you discover the wonders and the joys and the majesty and the supremacy and the holiness of our Lord God. And I think he does that deliberately in stages and cycles because he says he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He'll never give you more than you can bear. But one of the wonderful things I've discovered about this process as you discover your impoverished spirit and start mourning in it, that unpleasant undoing of yourself is that he will always reveal his goodness and his glory and his majesty and his kindness and his mercy. And as you see that, 
This miracle takes place where you get transformed more and more into his likeness. It's a remarkable process, really. If you don't understand it, though, that when sin comes up, he wants you to recognize, to be affected in your heart at the grievousness of it, you're going to be confused because you're going to be not really understanding the cycle and the process. So it's going to be very hard for you to let go of things or to open up. You will resist the ways of God. It goes on. So what we find is this cycle taking place. We have revelation of sin that makes us poor in spirit. That leads us into mourning, which produces meekness. And that is a yielding without resistance to God's ways. And then all of a sudden this hunger and thirst for righteousness bursts forth in our hearts. It's like we know we lack this. But we realize he's the source of righteousness. He's the source of righteousness. And he is not only the source of it, that he is availing us of his righteousness. He is wanting to make us righteousness. He has made us righteous, which is really interesting in that we have this position with God, that we are made whole and perfect in him. And yet there's this outworking in our soul that needs to take place, the manifestation of the new reality, the new creation. This is God making himself like us. So all of this is going on. And you think, well, that's just pretty heavy. I'm not sure if I really like that. But the Lord says you're blessed. (laughs) And Matt, again, gave us this beautiful definition last week of what does it mean to be blessed? Well, in the Greek, it can mean to be in a state of bliss or fully satisfied. But did you realize that Jesus spoke Aramaic? And it's very likely that he gave this message in Aramaic. And as far as I'm aware, there's some transcripts that we have that are Aramaic in, in their writing. And the Aramaic for this word has this connotation. It builds on this being fully satisfied, but it's, it's defined in this way. It is the very best person, the very best a person, so to be blessed, is to know that the very best a person has to offer in every respect is available to you because of your relationship with the one bestowing the blessing. It's the very best, to be blessed is to know that the very best a person has to offer in every respect is available to you because of your relationship with the one bestowing the blessing. The very best of God is made available to you in every dimension of your life because of your relationship with him. Nothing else. And how are we in relationship with God? Jesus came right at the beginning of the gospel to save his people from their sin. We go to the end of the gospel and we see him go to the cross. To die for our sin And to declare to the whole of humanity when he is raised from the dead that any who would receive him will be given the gift of eternal life. To recognize what Jesus has done for us on the cross and to accept the sacrifice that he made for us, which means you have to come to terms with sin and what that your sin put him on the cross. And he says, when you accept that, you come into relationship with me, 
And because you're in relation with me, because I have adopted you, having received my son, I will now make my very best available to you in every aspect of your life, purely because you, I now call you my son, my daughter, you are my child, you are in my kingdom. And this is what it means. That's what it means to be blessed. It's amazing. The challenge is coming to terms with the process. Revelation of sin leads to mourning, produces meekness, births in you a hunger and thirst for righteousness. You become merciful because if in your heart you're full of judgment and vengeance, <laughs> you're not going to be very merciful. But it's when you go through this process, those things fall away because you know that God has been merciful to you. You see the sin in your own heart and realize you need mercy as much as anyone else on this planet. And as that process happens, it purifies your heart and it says we see God as he is and we become like him and then we mature into sonship, which is what's talking about um, those are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, they'll be sons of God. Sons in the mature sense of the one who inherits the business of his father. The whole process that we are put through is to become sons and daughters of God in that mature sense so that we go out in the ministry of reconciliation, which it talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, to reconcile all things back to God. Having reconciled you to God, he now sends you out as his emissaries to reconcile everyone else to God. And that's what it means to go out and be salt and light. God is not here creating a holding bay until we are taken up into heaven. He wants you to become like him and go out into that world, be salt and light and reconcile people to him because you carry the presence of him in your life. You've manifested the character of who he is and you bear witness with the power of the Holy Spirit what he has done on the cross and you are a demonstration and a testimony to the grace, the glory, the power and the might of our resurrected Lord. But you have to know that this is a process that can be painful. No one likes to have to look in their own heart. That's why you need to find a trusted brother or sister that you can actually be vulnerable with to confess your sin that can lead you in this process, that understands the grace of God. But in knowing that in this process, this cycle that God has given us to be transformed into mature sons and daughters of the Most High, it comes easier. You're no longer confused. Why am I having to face it? Why am I grieving? What's the, what is this about? You're blessed because God is taking you through a process to make, him just, make you just like him. How about we pray? Before we do, I'll just say this. Look, some people, and forgive me if I haven't done this, um, some people love practical stuff. Like, how does this work out? What do I do? Part of it is you, you need to go away and work it out. <laughs> But not alone. We're supposed to work together. Uh, you can come and ask me <laughs> questions. You know, how do I actually yield to this process? But when you start understanding God's picture 
and his process. It reorients your life and it helps you to understand the circumstances you're going through. The circumstances you're going through that frustrate you, that annoy you, that cause you pain aren't just the devil having a go at you or it's just not this battle against something else. There's actually a work that God is doing if you have eyes to see to continue to mature you into your, in your faith. And I think understanding the Beatitudes is that spiritual formation process is part of recognizing when you are frustrated by someone, you realize you don't have a capacity actually to emotionally or mentally or socially deal with this situation. That's where it hits the, the rubber hits the road. That's where you have to recognize, oh, I lack. You know, this really hit home for me with my son when he was like, a year, some of we're up, you know, the sleepless nights, all your parents, you know what it's like. We're only on our first <laughs> at that time. Um, 2 a.m. in the morning, it's been a restless night. He's crying, he's not sleeping, he's inconsolable. And I'm at that point, I'm at the threshold where I am not coping. And I could feel this anger rise up in me. And the horror of it, because you're you're looking at a one-year-old child, your, your beloved child, and you can feel this anger rise up. And it's like in the moment I realized we use anger as a coping mechanism because anger brings power and authority and, and it, it exerts force to try and control a situation. And I had a choice. I had to allow the situation to break me and before God recognized just how lacking I am to know how to manage this and raise this kid. Or... I do what so many of society tragically do is they harden their heart. So many fathers. It's a tragedy, the abuse that goes on in families because they cannot cope with their own incapacity to deal with their situation and they have not the courage to be broken by their sin. Cowards. We're all like that, in some degree. I implore you, understand the process and yield to it, and you will see the glory of God, and you will discover that he will set you free from the things that bind you. And then you'll see that you are made for a greater purpose than just sorting out and meandering through life by yourself, but bringing that kind of glory to a society that so desperately needs it. But it starts in the house of God. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are grieved by sin and overwhelmed by grace. I thank you so much that in your word there is so much there to teach us your ways, to break down our resistances. I thank you so much for how much mercy is just there every day, every new. Your mercy is anew every morning. It's such a beautiful thing to know because we desperately need it. Lord, I pray for those that this word actually, as it goes into their heart, that they would discover the presence even now. Lord, I just ask Holy Spirit, come comfort those in their hearts. Just for anxiety to be washed away. For all fears of you, Lord, to be gone. That they might actually be able to understand just how gentle you are as they yield to you. 
and how gracious you are and that you will indeed pour into that place that they lack so much, the rivers of living water. You will make a flourishing like a garden in that place. They will see trees and forests in the places of their life there has only been darkness and barrenness. May this blessing be upon your people today and may it go deep into their hearts as we journey through this Sermon on the Mount over the next however many months we, we go through it, that we might be formed and created and mature in our faith. Walking before you in the land of the living as true sons and daughters ought to live, giving glory and honour to you in every aspect and every dimension of our lives because we understand and know that it is all by your grace and grace alone and it's all through Jesus, our Lord. Amen.